My friend Luke Fritch once marveled to me about our propensity for naming things after what they were once known for. Urban strip malls completely surrounded by concrete take on names like Deer Creek or Pheasant Run, despite the fact that the habitat for both of these species was decimated decades ago to make room for their new namesake. The same phenomenon has taken place with prairie. Illinois is nicknamed the Prairie State despite the fact that it only holds on to less than one-tenth of a percent of its original prairie acres. The same trend can be seen for nearly all towns named something prairie, something city, all of the athletic teams known as the Prairie Storm, and pretty much every small-town business that uses prairie in its name. What's baffling about this is we like the word prairie. We like the idea of prairie. We are drawn to the branding of prairie, yet We killed the prairie with first the plows of need and then the bulldozers of progress and always the short-sightedness of the here and now. But to fully understand what we have all but lost, we need to go back to when prairie first showed up. What was the world like and what did the creatures living here in the heart of North America see, feel, and know? Here at Hoxie Native Seeds, we dream of the prairies in their original glory and fight hard to bring them back. And after joining us in our pursuit to learn about the history of our prairies, I am confident you will share our sentiments. So, enjoy this series, Prehistoric Prairie. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. I'm Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sohold. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to The Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Boy, do we have a special episode lined up for your curious ears. This is the first of three episodes in our Prehistoric Prairie series, and we are thrilled that you are here to learn about how our prairies got here, what was here before them, and what we can expect for them in the future. A little disclaimer as we dive into this discussion. Both Nicholas and myself are well aware of the controversies and sensitivities that exist when discussing ancient history. One reason for this, of course, is that there is very little information that can be known with certainty about these times. But the other is that there are many religious and cultural interpretations that exist in regards to ancient times. We do not intend to disrespect any person's beliefs and are sharing only the perspectives of our guests. In order to fully understand the story of prairie, we have to wind back time to the beginning of when prairies first started showing up. To help us get things started, let's hear what Central College's professor of biology and prairie expert, Dr. Russ Benedict, has to say. Individual grasses started showing up probably 30, 40 million years ago, Mm -hmm. um, which is 
it's kind of hard to imagine that length of time, but 30, 40 million years ago in the grand scheme of, of nature is, is a relatively recent arrival. It's more recent than the dinosaurs, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Now, dinosaurs went, um, winked out at about 65 million years ago, um, except for those that still hang on. You know, birds are, are descendants of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the big ones that we think of, yeah, 65 million years ago. So, so this arrival of, of grasses was a bit after that. Um, then probably in that seven to 10 million years ago range is when we started having really big widespread grasslands. I, my guess is that's probably the answer to here in Iowa, I'm going to bet somewhere in that seven to 10 million year, hmm. year ago range, we had widespread grasses. Um, but then climate was kind of going crazy. Um, and so the species that were present kind of shifted all over the place. Um, and different species arrived, other species went extinct. Sure. Um, so the, the prairies that we think of, um, the, you know, kind of the specific assembly of plants that we call tall grass prairie, that's a much more recent thing. Um, but I want to I comment a little tiny bit about kind of this, this incredible teeter-totter that we refer to as the Pleistocene, the, mm-hmm. the Ice Age. Yeah. Um, so that started about 2.2 million years ago. And, and during that time, um, at, at least seven different times, glaciers formed in Canada. Um, and then they chugged their way south. Um, and sometimes they reached all the way to Iowa. Most of the time they did. Um, but other times they, they wouldn't reach quite all the way to Iowa. So, mm. so these seven different glacial episodes... Um, and so what that means is basically at least seven times during the last 2.2 million years, we've had really cool and moist conditions for, you know, 100,000 years, hmm. 150,000 years in the Midwest. And then those were separated by another 80 to 90,000 years of pretty hot, dry conditions. So you just had this incredible teeter-totter going on for the last, the last 2.2 million years. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying is that you know, during the cool, wet times, the some of the forests from our north spread down here. Sometimes we'd be hmm. mostly oak hickory forests. Other times we would have a whole bunch of spruce and fir um, from, from what is currently northern Minnesota. Those would be present here. Hmm. There were times when we'd have tundra here. You know, wow. you don't, you have to go a thousand miles to our north to find yeah. tundra. Yeah. Um, but it was here. Um, and then incredible. other times it would be hot and dry and we'd have widespread prairies. Um, so, so just an incredible change over um, a very recent time span. Um, so literally the thought then is that our current tall grass prairie probably arrived somewhere in the vicinity of 70, 80,000 years ago or so. Um, and then pretty widely spread Iowa, probably 15 to 20,000 years ago. That was right about the end of the last glacial episode. Okay. Um, so what that means, though, is that our current tall grass prairie is an incredibly young ecosystem. Um, and what's also really fascinating to think about is humans arrived right in that same window, that 15 to 20,000 years ago range. Um, they came across the what we call the Bering Land Bridge. They came from Russia across to Alaska and then fairly quickly spread out across North America. Um, so essentially, humans may have been here in the, in the Midwest for as long as the tall grass prairie as we know it has been. Incredible. Our land has changed drastically over the course of history, with its most recent establishment of tall grass prairie taking place after the final glaciation event. As Dr. Benedict stated, historical ebbs and flows brought on by shifts in climate greatly affected the biomes. Now, I'm going to stop right here and define what a biome is. Although I'm sure if you are listening in, you can remember how your biology teacher taught you what this term meant. 
Anyway, a biome is a particular region of distinct vegetation and wildlife that is determined by the climate of that region. No, I don't have a source to cite here because, you know, I used to be a biology teacher. So the biomes present in the now prairie regions of North America exist primarily because the climate has made that possible. But climate doesn't make life. It only allows for it. So a question that I have often wondered about is when the climate did allow for the establishment of prairie, where did the seed stock for these species come from? Let's hear more from Dr. Benedict. You know, uh, between what's considered like the big five and prairie uh, market industry, you've got switchgrass, cytoscrama, little blue stem, big blue stem, and Indian grass. Do you know which one happens to be the oldest? Or if any of them stand out, where they all kind of evolved within the same... Yeah, I'm afraid that's a that's a question I don't know the answer to. Ah. I wish I knew that one. Yeah. What what I can tell you is is where they came from, how they ended up as part of the the mm. tall grass prairie is kind of an interesting story. Yeah. Um, Indian grass and big blue stem are really kind of, you know, and this this might be heresy to say, but they're kind of eastern plants. Um, they were oh. probably found in some of these grassland openings in the forests of the east. Um, they spread west out this way and kind of found a home out here in tall grass prairie. So so the the is tall that- grass. Prairie. Is that most likely from animal transplant getting caught in buffalo fur or birds, you know, disseminating right, seeds? Right. Or, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't. I mean, they certainly do get stuck in the in the, in the fur of bison and things along those lines. Um, so that's. I think that's certainly possible. But it may have also been, um, you know, the, the, as I say this, you know, they were out east and then they moved west. We kind of imagine these grasses getting up and sprinting across the landscape. <laughs> you know, they're moving a mile sure, um, every yeah. ten years because of just seeds flowing in the wind. Sure. Um, so it might have also been a much slower move, movement slow like that. Slow advancement. Yeah. But essentially, the, the, one of the phrases you'll hear about tall grass prairie is that many of the species were borrowed from surrounding ecosystems. Um, and mm. so, so, yeah, quite a few of our species actually probably originated elsewhere and then later colonized tall grass prairies. Yeah. That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's, mm. that's really interesting. Because, you, you know, you wonder that. You, it's easy to picture, the, you know, the glaciers providing the, the good soil, and it's easy to picture, you know, drying out as the climate changes. But then where does that seedbed come mm. from, you know, that, 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 that stock for so much, you know, so many miles and miles of prairie? But, yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating to, to hear that. Seed stock from the east and the slow expansion from wind dispersal are the likely means for getting the original prairie planted? Wow, talk about a slow-moving process for forming our iconic grasslands here in the prairie states. Maybe that's how dandelions got here. Anyway, once prairie plants showed up, it wouldn't have taken long for the prairie plant eaters to show up to continue developing the food chain. In fact, many of these critters that moved into the prairie regions in their earliest days to fill in the ecosystem were large, strange mammals that were just as imposing as the sea of grass in and near where they lived. And they are generally referred to as Pleistocene megafauna. To learn more about these unique creatures, Nicholas and I traveled to central Illinois to meet up with three gentlemen who have a passion for finding evidence of the ancient history that took place in the prairie state. 
First, we will hear from expert outdoorsman and citizen scientist Judd McCollum of Working Class Bowhunter, who knows very well the impressive features of these gigantic animals after finding evidence of a couple of creatures who lived here but went extinct while the prairies were still forming. So it's significant if you find a mammoth tusk anywhere. However, mm-hmm. if you find a mammoth tusk in uh, Alaska... You know, uh, yes, it's still very cool, but it's more to far be from being yeah, yeah far from being unheard of. Mm-hmm. This is in like kind of south central Illinois. Yeah, the geographic center of Illinois. Yeah, yeah, and here it is. And you know, there were a lot of people that that were dubious of it. They thought that you know, I had it after it spent eighteen months drying. I had people come and look at it and say, "Are are you sure that's not wood?" Hmm. And I was like, "Yeah." I'm, fairly certain that's not wood <laughs> you know and then uh, and then the word kind of spread and initially I, I talked to you guys on the way down here about a farmer that contacted us and said he thought that he had part of a buffalo skull as he called it and said to come on out to his place and I went out and I met him on his front porch and I said hi I'm you know I'm Judd introduced myself he had contacted the college to get a hold of me and uh, I said what, what have you got for me and he just reached around behind him and pulled out you know, a, a mastodon tooth about the size of a size eight shoe <laughs> wrapped in uh in jaw matrix in the bone and handed it to me. And he said, uh, well, you know, I just, I kind of thought that was just a part of a Buffalo head and hmm. you can have it. <laughs> so, oh, oh, okay. It's, it's a mastodon. You know, it's a mastodon tooth is a pretty big deal. Like you're, you farm cattle, like, you know, buffalo are about the same size. And he's like, I never thought anything about it. I just put it in the basement to collect spider webs. So take yeah. it, get it out of here. He told me about yeah. where he found it, and I took it back to the college. And then uh, there was a, a bow hunter, and I never got his name. He had, he had read about the find in the paper, and he was crossing a creek on the way into or out of his tree stand and found the tip of a tusk from wow. a mammoth or a mastodont. And, you know, gave it over to kind us. Kind of so. similar area. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was from, he was from here in Logan County. Yeah. Mammoths and mastodons here in the heartland. Fascinating. Finding evidence like this is what really gets the inquisitive brain cranking into overdrive. Here's what Judd's friend and fellow fossil hunter, John Waller had to say. On things like this. I mean, you're so used to looking at what we're used to looking at. And then you have something that's 12,000 years old plus in your hand, and you're just like, wait, this isn't what I'm used to looking at. What is this? Mm-hmm. It's not a deer bone. And, <laughs> you know, then it starts, uh, you start uh, kind of canceling things out or taking pictures, really, and send it off to people like Judd that, you know, can really give a definitive answer and knows his stuff. But um, we just out there uh walk in and you just don't know what each step is going to lead to that's at the end of the day that's all it boils down to it's yep. like uh and every step you put in is going to bring you closer to something that you don't even know what that something is but it's still bringing you closer great points john staring at these relics of the past really gets the mind racing thirsting for more clues as to what the old world was like and how it changed so much since these bones weren't fossils. Mastodons and mammoths take us back in time thousands of years, but what about hundreds of years ago? 
Is there much of a difference now as far as the wildlife and their habitat are considered compared to hundreds of years ago? The third man in the room, fellow fossil hunter and habitat manager, Mitch Gleason, has a good idea because he has found antlers from an extinct elk subspecies that once thrived throughout eastern North America, including Illinois. Mitch said this in reference to the Illinois elk. Does anybody know when elk officially disappeared from Illinois? And for when the Logan County record, as far as I can tell, basically there's really no speak of it. So I imagine that it was basically gone as soon as settlers started coming through. So like late 1700s, right at the beginning in 1800s. Uh, I know that there were definitely no really talk of them, so they were definitely gone by eighteen by statehood, eighteen eighteen. Okay, sure, for sure. So, so uh, you know, we're talking two hundred years, yeah, two hundred and fifty yeah, years. Uh, and just about. been laying in a creek for two hundred and some years or something like that, and just just it, outstanding. It's in such good shape that I figured it had to be buried almost you know, like the, that that season yeah. immediately because. You know, it doesn't. Really, you know, I find other other deer antlers, and the deer antlers are crumbling apart. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And then you find this, and it's still in solid condition, and everything. It's yeah. yeah. Mitch, it's, they uh, carbon dated the one at the state museum that was found in uh, Kickapoo, and that was right? uh, that was over two thousand. That was just over two thousand years old, and that was the wow. oldest. That right. was the oldest so. elk elk fossil or elk remains found in illinois we can say a couple wow. a couple hundred years but when you're finding stuff mm, three like point, this three thousand to three hundred the way that this is uh this elk shed right here i mean that's got some age on it that isn't a couple oh, yeah. hundred years old that, well, that one was fully exposed to the elements it was sitting on top of the gravel in kind of wow. a full sun area i mean mine was too but it, you know i think that these probably came out of the same flood event because yeah. we had we had two hundred year floods last year, so okay, yep. You know, it really kind of churned things up Open and changed things, things Honestly, completely everywhere. Everything on this table, which is a lot, for the most part, came out of that flood event. Yeah, okay. or got pushed around by it in one way or another. I often dream about the giant antlered elk of Illinois and Iowa that are no longer present. In fact, I would love to do a podcast episode dedicated to these incredible animals, but I have to stay focused on the task at hand. And all this talk about hundreds and thousands of years ago led me to asking Judd and Mitch what they believe the prairie states would have looked like hundreds and thousands of years ago. We'll just start with the number 300 years ago. What, based on your finds and any research you've done, what do you think the Midwestern prairies would have been been like 300 years ago? Like from a you know megafauna standpoint, even to maybe how the rivers would have been, how you know vegetation would have looked. You know what what do you what do you think, Judd? Oh, 300 years ago, you're probably looking at you know meandering streams and rivers with really healthy. Um, riparian corridors creek creek corridors with tons of life in them and that probably gave way to some oak savanna um of course you've got your upland hardwood forest stuff like that but as far as the the animal life you know we were at uh, the peak of the bison population at that point mm. um for having lack of competition with other me- megafauna for twelve thousand years and it's <laughs> yeah it's just really fun to think about it never ceases to make me grin when I'm thinking about it. 
So if the landscape and its inhabitants have been altered that much over the past 300 years, how much has changed over the past 1 to 10,000 years? Here's what Mitch thinks. Then, Mitch, as you're looking at, at uh, you know, things that are thousands of years old, what kind of picture is, you know, we're starting to stretch now. Let's go from like 300 to that 1,000 to, you know, maybe back to 10,000. What what are you starting to see based on what you're finding, maybe numbers of things? So this area was um, was involved with the, la- with the furthest glaciation that came south. And um, it was like one of the last glaciers to, to, to come down to. And um, that event happened, you know, the edge of it was not very far from here. So there's a glacial moraine um, that is, associates with the only terrain that's in the county. And um, everything that was, you know, creates, it also creates our streams. Um, everything that was not in those county or in, in those stream beds areas was was grass pretty much um mm-hmm. it was it was burnt by native americans um they uh, they maintained the prairies through either use of war or hunting or um just they just understood that the that it made the the uh, the prairies greener and it attracted everything else um but during that time coming out of the glacial the period I mean, early, you know, several 10,000 years ago, it would have looked a lot like the tundra of, of Alaska. I mean, very um, bare exposed rock soils, um, boreal forest. Um, I, we find, we do find boreal wood um, buried in, oh, in the really? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We do find, we do find wow. quite a bit of wood that, it, I mean, you pick it up and it just smells like sulfur and, and you break it apart and it looks like charcoal. It's just barely there. Yeah. It's wow. barely there. I mean, you can just grab it and just pull it out of the bank. So, so if you're listening and you're wondering, okay, what's that word boreal mean? Boreal forest would be basically the kind of the last tree line as you head north on our continent, right before you get to just ice. And uh, it's uh, these really shallow rooted trees, uh, beaver uh, dams. There would have been there would have been be- beaver dams, very tall. Sure. Yep. Um, you know, because it would have been very something easy that would have been for them to take down. Um, there would have been pockets of water, little lakes. Um, there was actually a lake that was formed up here. It was a natural lake area that they drained out. Um, it it was just it was a lot of swamp. Hence the reason why the um, the, the stag moose antler. You know, granted that's a little bit older, but the stag moose antler is fine because. Whenever he lost that antler, he probably lost it in belly deep water, hmm. in, yeah. a peat, in a peat, and that's and that's so it fell down into the peat, and then it then it then it de- the peat decomposed and eventually washed out into the creek bank, and then it deposited it. Boreal forests, peat bogs, and stag moose. This sounds like a completely different region of the world, but the evidence doesn't lie. Things were definitely different. Someone who is an expert at examining this evidence, specifically that of Pleistocene megafauna, is Dr. Julie Meachin, an associate professor of anatomy and who also teaches courses on paleontology at Des Moines University. Nick and I made the short drive to visit with Dr. Meachin, and she had this to say about the wildlife present during this ancient era. Spoiler alert, the wildest of critters of the old-time heartland is about to get even more wild. What of those critters that, and may, and you feel free to add to these too, would we have seen here in you know the prairie states, so across the Midwest, what kind of uh, megafauna would have been inhabiting 
uh, this part of the country. Uh, it would have been so. These megafauna they really did get around. Um, mm. Most of the megafauna were found all over most of North America. Um, so we definitely had um, mammoths here. We know we had mammoths here. We have lots of sites with mammoth fossils. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely had dire wolves here. Okay. Uh, there are dire wolf fossils from Iowa. There are smilodon fossils from Iowa. So saber tooth so cool. cats. I did not know that. That is that is that made my day right there. Um, that we had some there are ground cats. sloth fossils from Iowa. Um, lots of bison fossils from Iowa. Mm. So uh, probably the the Ice Age or Pleistocene species bison antiquus or okay. the, the ancient bison. Um, I'm sure that we had camels here. Um, we probably had other big critters too. We probably had short faced bears. I don't know how oh, much. Really? Yeah, I don't know how much <laughs> record we have of those, but they're pretty pan um, pan continental. Um, these species are found at either end of the continent. We have good records from Florida. We have good records from California. And if I, you know, it stands to reason if they're found in those two places. Um, you know, they may have been found here. The only issue might have been, you know, the cold to some degree. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the species that we know that are found in the cold were probably found here. So... Dire wolves, camels, ground sloths, saber-toothed cats. See what I mean? What a different world this was. And to hear how far of a range these critters were found over opens up a new can of worms that we will have to deal with later. Perhaps the strangest of these creatures living in the prairie states was the giant ground sloth. And the bizarre anatomy of this animal serves as yet another clue for describing the type of habitat that would have been present thousands of years ago when the giant ground sloths were here where we are today it's hard to imagine some of these things being around but uh john you gave us a really cool so here's a here's something nick just texted me while we're recording that i need to make a little announcement here to see these finds go on to uh, our uh, instagram page at hoxie native seeds and you can see images of these and you'll see a video of john explaining to us um how the uh ground sloth would have fed on trees uh you can just look at the structure of its uh mouth the uh kind of the palate bones of the of the roof of the mouth for that uh animal and then also the gap in its teeth and the positioning of its molars for how it would have fed but we get the idea john that there was still a lot of hardwood trees around here that um these ground sloths would have been feeding on right oh yeah i mean they would have been stripping everything they could reach really and uh just chewing it up and growing in the massive creatures and i mean it's hard to imagine like a volkswagen bug just walking around (laughs) yeah uh but i mean if you look these creatures up they're just so strange like yeah how could something like that evolve adapt survive uh just a meandering volkswagen bus with uh, flesh and bone while it's competing with you know like giant cats american lion uh short-faced bear and short yeah. fa- oh man that's probably the, the worst one and then you got uh you know us hunting it too so um i mean there's a lot of space a lot of forest for these creatures and they could just get in there and thrive so 
Do you agree with me yet? Ground sloths like the strangest critter of all time type of strange critter. Anyways, understanding how it ate and how it was built helps us get a better picture of the landscape during its time on Earth. As I used to repeat over and over to my biology students, structure equals function. And it takes a unique structure to navigate a unique world. The ground sloth definitely illustrates this. I brought up this topic with Dr. Meachin to find out any possible links between the unique anatomical structures of the Pleistocene megafauna. This is what she had to say. A lot of these large species, and you know, this goes right down into your area of expertise here, because uh, this is an anatomy structure equals function type question, right? Mm-hmm. So I imagine there had to be a lot of common traits. Like, first of all, when I look at, when I, when I do any kind of research into this stuff, I'm always blown away by the size of these creatures. Yeah. Because even like, you know, a grizzly bear is a huge animal today. Right. But put him next to a short-faced bear and it's little brother, big brother, you right. know. And and you look at the size of of a, a ground sloth, just incredible. You know, yeah. they're reaching way up into those trees to, to eat. And even dire wolves compared to like a gray wolf now. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there a, like a whole host of common traits that you've seen in your research that kind of fit organisms that these large megafauna that were living at this time? So that's a great question. And the only thing that they really all have in common is size. I mean, mm. they're all just like super sized, right? Sure. Um, especially compared to the things that we have around today. And, and amazingly, they were a lot smaller than some of the things that were around before them. Hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, the form, the form equals function thing is, is true. Um, but these different animals sort of had different niches and they did different jobs. So for Mm -hmm. example, I'll just compare and contrast a mammoth and a mastodon. They're both giant elephants, right? Mm -hmm. Um, they're both really big. However, their body shapes are really different in terms of if you look at them just as the same group. A mammoth is really tall. They have these really high shoulders. They have these really high heads. They have these giant tusks, Mm -hmm. right? And they're an open habitat species. So basically there was the only upper limit on their size was, um, you know, physical constraints, right? Mm -hmm. Gravity um, is really the only problem that they have to struggle against in terms of like their upper height and their and their weight um whereas a mastodon is a forest dwelling animal and so they're much shorter and Mm -hmm. squatter and they're probably thicker but they're but they're they're definitely shorter um and their tusks aren't anywhere near as long they're much shorter and they're much more functional they Mm -hmm. used them so they basically kept them filed down a lot um and that's because they had to maneuver in trees and Mm. in the forest and they you know rub their they ate trees they rub their tusks on trees they use their tusk to get at the bark of trees to eat that Mm. um and so they look very similar on face but when you really get down to it they have different body forms and and i guess the same things could be said of something like um i'll go with cats since that's the the um the the group of animals i know really well Mm -hmm. um when you look at something like a jaguar versus a cheetah right they're both cats they both kill prey they both have sharp teeth for that but their body shapes actually look very different when you look at them. A jaguar sure. is really robust and squat and has mm-hmm. short, um, 
bones in their forearm and longer bones in their upper arm. Okay. And a cheetah is the opposite. And a cheetah has a short upper arm bone, really long lower limbs, and they're very thin. And that's mm. because they're built for doing, doing two totally different things. So mm -hmm. the jaguar is really a, you know, a powerhouse that's really good at at power, it's really good at what we call mechanical advantage. It can mm -hmm. climb a tree like nobody's business. It's good in bursts. Right. Whereas a cheetah is going to be fast. They're just really fast, and that is their job. Mm -hmm. And cheetah might be able to climb a tree, but certainly not as well as a jaguar. And sure. I guarantee you that if you put a cheetah against a caiman in the river, the caiman's going to win, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, Whereas that's not the case for the jaguar. The jaguars yeah. kill caimans in the river all the time. And so they are they are totally built for doing different things, even though they look very similar when you first see them. Hmm. Wow, that was interesting. So the only really common trait that all of these crazy Pleistocene megafauna had in common was their size. I never really thought to ask Dr. Meachin why large body size was such a common trait. But I imagine a lot of it had to do with available nutrition at the time. And then, of course, just like always, the natural selection pruning process that favored larger organisms who had to survive in the presence of other large organisms. Regardless, analyzing the way these ancient critters interacted with their habitats by looking at their fossilized remains provides evidence that is helpful for determining the structure of the ancient landscape. But it isn't the only evidence. Examining topographical features such as soil, elevation changes, and stream beds help piece the puzzle together as well. We're going to go back to John, and he's going to explain how surface water contributed to the way the land would have been structured at that time. The one thing that we didn't really, really touch on when you uh, when we were asking, you know, what the past looked like, and water. I mean, water, water was. Yeah. The amount of water, the way I look at it is like nowadays our water systems are like running down veins. Mm -hmm. They're almost like a vein system where it's real controlled. Back then it would be more like veins to lungs. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a great and description. The, and the capillaries would be all the marshes and all that. So yeah. you'd have every time you had all this water come in, it'd flood out and create all these marshes. And, I mean, that was a big, big part of, uh, I mean, even in the 1800s, that's when they were trying to control all, all that stuff. But imagine back even further when there is even more water to displace. And you can look at one sand hill and then another sand hill that's a mile apart. And that was the river back in the day. Now you're looking at a small little strip of river in the middle of it. And really that's just where the water is going to play. It's going to play between those two points. And mm -hmm. at one time it was completely filled that whole gap. So yeah. imagine yeah. the difference of the water in the past. I mean, you, you saw on our walk, you saw that there was another drainage ditch that was yeah. out there and there was like all these little ditches that ran through the timber. Well, that from the hillside that my, my house sits on to, to pass where we were, there's, there's another hill. Well, it means everything in between the river had shifted between here and there over about a mile away over the, you know, consistently for the past 7,000 or 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 years. Water is the circulatory system of the landscape. 
I love that description John provided. And he's right. Along with wind and tectonic activity, water is a primary shaping force of Earth's surface. And it's important to remember that when considering the historic prairie ranges and the plant and animal species that are and were found here. A story that has become somewhat of a modern-day legend that illustrates John and Mitch's points about the role of water and fossil distribution comes from Judd's personal experience. Let's listen to Judd telling us about his incredible find that he pulled out of a creek bed while he was doing lab work for his college biology course. I think you will be in just as much disbelief as both his fellow classmates and professor were. Judd, uh, what was it? Maybe within 10 miles of where we're sitting, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Back in what year was it? 2005. September 2005, yep. 2005, doing a river survey for a college course, right? Yep. I did a few of those. They're fun, interesting. Mm -hmm. That's when you find out who all the the city slicker kids are that uh, have never wandered through a creek before. Yep. But uh, weren't you dragging a seine or something like that across the river? No, the two guys um, that got in the water before me were pulling a seine, and they got it. They either tripped over or got the seine hung up on what ended up being the, the tusk that I found. Yeah, and not just any tusk. The biggest tusk uh, in Illinois mm-hmm. re- recovered in Illinois history, right? Yep, for sure. Yep. And what was the what was the length on that bad boy? Again? Uh, Eleven and some change. Eleven feet and some change. <laughs> that is so wild. Now, the the part that I love the most about that story, other than the fact that you found a mammoth tusk, was nobody believed you at first, right? Right. And, and, and everybody, and you were like there were multiple people to like physically touch this thing before you got to it. And they're all like, eh, get this annoying thing out of the way. Yep. And you, you were like, what is that? I knew it wasn't supposed to be there. I knew it wasn't a tree or a rock and it was, it was, I thought it was a femur or a humerus, but it ended up being a tusk when I picked it up. Man, that and, and your teacher didn't believe you. Your prof didn't yeah, believe you. Right? It, it it took him a minute. Yeah, he he's uh, he's never going to live that down. <laughs> we always laugh about that when we get together. He's like, you always tell everybody about the tractor tire thing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I picked up the middle section of it, which was three three and a half feet long, and I'm holding it and I'm looking at the ends, and I said, I uh, I found a tusk. And he heard me, and he turns around, and he looks, and, you know, he's he's 100 yards away, so he can be forgiven right. for thinking this. And he goes, that's a that's a piece of a tractor tire. You should probably get back to work. <laughs> so, I, you know, I took it over and laid it out on the sandbar, and I, I, there was a girl um, standing there pretty close to me. I said, hey, stand right in this spot and don't move. And I came back, and I got the the, the base of it with the, uh, the root socket and set it down, and I went back, and I got the tip and set it down. There was actually a – part of a second tusk that I pulled up out of the, out of the Creek bottom and it, it split like a banana. So we, we lost it really quickly. See, what did I tell you? Unbelievable. Well, hold on to your hip waiters because the story is about to get even more crazy. When you hear of all the other things, Judd, Mitch, and John have pulled out of the same Creek bed. This is also the same waterway that Judd found his yeah several mammoths. Several, several so we found apart. in this same waterway we found stag moose, we found elk, giant ground sloth, mammoth tooth, muskox. Oh, and the giant beaver, a mammoth um, mammoth vertebrae. The and the, the bison. ivory wasn't found up there though, but yeah. And then wow. yeah, then, then several That's bison. Insane. Several bison. I know where I want to spend a few of my days waiting through a creek. What a mind blowing haul of relics! 
You know, I'm starting to understand that water seems to be a key feature in finding evidence of the Heartland's past inhabitants. But I want to know why there are so many different types of animals in such a focused area. There has to be more to this. When you're finding all of these different species in one area, it makes you wonder why, right? Why is this major deposit happening? And when you can come up with some answers to that question, you get more of an idea what the landscape looked like at that time. So any any reasons, Judd, why you would think that, like what John just talked about, listing all these different species would be found in one relatively small area? I mean, it just speaks to the, the density of the animals. They would have existed like this all, mm. all across their range. I don't think this is any special concentration of animals. I think this is a, a special circumstance where the creek is doing the work and, and excavating down to that gravel layer in the right way and in such a broad way that it, it is revealing this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. Mitch, any any thoughts why you think there, there'd be so many there? It, well, it has to do with, with the glacial moraine, the way it carved out the it, the way it carved out the landscape and it made these because the, the creeks were here. We we may have channelized them, but they they just the settlers just utilized at the low low, low wet ground. Hmm. Um, so there would have always been lots of water in the area, and it always built because if depending on which which way you look at it, the the end of the ice age, there was a very warm period. It was very dry, and so yeah. I mean, you know, if you didn't have if there wasn't an area that was close to these pockets of high amounts of moisture, I mean, you could have been in you know basically a desert desert yeah essentially yeah. and so um you know the the water shaped the shaped the landscape and then it also deposited all the silts a lot of the silts that we have here creating the, the peat bogs and everything else that built our prairies that yeah. we have here that are local and so it, it, in a way you're what you're describing is the right conditions for preserving a lot of dead stuff yes exactly and that's the other main thing like judd was saying it, it's it's also that's the way that you know the amount of water that was there created the oxygen um de- de- uh, deficient areas that you know preserve these bones because mm. without if you just set something on the surface of the of the ground you know eventually just turn get all bleached out crack and as soon as it gets touches water again then it sh- then it shatters the freezing thaw and things just it's just really really hard on stuff so it's kind of important that we find things that are in the water or going to be exposed to elements and stuff like that that are that are that are just going to just turn into dust essentially okay the answer to my question seems to be twofold the topographical features found in this location may have drawn animals in to use it as suitable habitat But the presence of water in these locations also provided the perfect conditions needed for preserving more animal remains than dry land habitats would have provided. Regardless, we are really starting to flesh out our picture of this undocumented landscape. Marshes and bogs, boreal forests, glaciers, a totally different landscape that stirs my curiosity into a frenzy. I want to know more about it and how my own home turf is connected to it. To make this connection, Nick and I visited our neighboring county naturalist, Laura DeCook. Laura told us about a soil sampling project that revealed some surprising results about the past vegetation in our region. To give another perspective of what Iowa used to be like back then, we did soil sampling. We did a a 
core dig Mm -hmm. um, and took out the sample and it was evaluated. And you know what was found there? What's that? Evidence of fir, spruce, and larch. Wow. Of boreal forest. That is so cool. So it's believed that the boreal forest that we'd find up in Canada, northern United mm-hmm. States, stretched way down here. That is so cool. And about. I mean, just what a different landscape. It was. And was it's believed the best we can understand, you know, with all these different types of Pleistocene mega animals that lived here. Um, they would need a wide variety of different food sources, mm. whether if mm. it's vegetation from trees, which mammoths could have done, or even mastodons, or the giant sloth. Mm-hmm. There was a sloth found in southwest Iowa. Wow. That's awesome. Actually, more than one. Um, and so then cool. some of them would have needed grasslands, some of them, I don't know, just a wide variety of habitats for them to live in so it's believed that iowa was a big mixture of Mm -hmm. all of these different types of environments and so the boreal forest would have just been a part of it of course we had the glacier Mm -hmm. too can't forget that's a big part of iowa and Mm -hmm. that is why the landscape in the northern central part of iowa is so flat all the way down to des moines this huge sheet of ice the glacier was called the des moines lobe right yeah and so all of these animals would have lived off of the glacier. So from where our distance in Mahaska County is to Des Moines, that's just a great distance to live yeah. off of the glacier. And I'm sure there was glacier melt that came down mm-hmm. at times. Wow. Fir, spruce, and larch trees in south central Iowa. This confirms that the boreal forest was present in our own neck of the woods. Uh, sorry for the bad pun. <laughs> Anyways, the boreal forest then is a long ways away from the boreal forest now. But with such an extreme difference in biome and habitat, it's starting to make sense why such drastically different critters were able to thrive here. Dr. Meachin had some additional insight to add as to why so many fossils are being found around the transitional drainage areas near historic locations of glaciers. Let's hear what she had to say. Someone we interviewed recently said that, you know, lots of animals, their favorite habitat is, um, or just fauna in general, uh, is transition areas. So the, and and I don't know how true this is, I was hoping you could verify a little more or not, but they were saying that the transition of like glacier Mm -hmm. um, into a more forested area it would be ba- yeah, just basically near that terminal edge of the glacier yeah. and then into the habitat that would pop up. You know, yeah, hundreds of taiga. miles in, in both directions. But that since it was a huge transition place, um, that there would be more fauna there. Do you? So I don't know whether there'd be actually more fauna there or not. But the fact of the matter is that forested areas are terrible for fossilization. They're mm. really just not good for fossilizing things and so we're not going to find a lot of animals in the areas that were forest right and it totally depends on the species for example a mammoth a Colombian mammoth would be much more interested in open areas Mm. so that transition area would probably be really prime habitat for them sure whereas something like a mastodon or um, something that was much more adapted to living in a forested area probably wouldn't like that transitional area they'd want a more forested closed habitat mm-hmm. so i think that really depends upon the species and the niche they filled and what they were eating 
and you know who their predators were or whether they were a predator who their prey was mm-hmm. um so it's a lot of factors but i think that mammoths probably really did like that transition area because mm-hmm. it was open Okay, so the transitional habitat definitely played a role as to why so many critters were fossilized in the regions we find them in. But that seems to have more to do with the type of habitat conditions present that were suitable for preserving animal remains more than it does with being a busy thoroughfare for all kinds of different megafauna to be doing their thing. I must admit, this burst my bubble a little bit, but we are here to find answers, so we must acknowledge what the evidence and research suggests. Dr. Meacham went on to answer another question I had about the uniformity of the landscape. Remember the can of worms I referenced earlier about how wide-ranging the distribution of these megafauna species is on the landscape? Well, Dr. Meachin is going to explain why that might be, and in doing so is going to offer more insight as to how the North American biomes may have shaped out in the past. So because of that very wide-ranging dispersal of all these different species, and there's some like that today, you know, like Mm -hmm. coyotes or um, uh, white-tailed deer, um, raccoons, you know, there's some animals that, you know, you can find them in almost all 50 States, Yeah. but for, for the most part, it's very sectioned off, you know, for what kind of, you know, today's megafauna, what are you going to find in those areas? Do you think that the ecosystems that were around at that time, and maybe we should even use, use a, uh, a different term, maybe the biomes would have been more similar you know, from region to region at that time in history, like less drastic change than what we see today. So in other words, Florida wouldn't be quite so different from Iowa, you know? So I would say, I would say no, I would say there's a lot of diversity in the Pleistocene. Um, There's probably a lot of differences in flora. Um, They were probably, um, and then the megafauna are sort of an exception because they are so big and they move Mm -hmm. around. And so when I'm talking about the megafauna being mobile, I'm mostly talking about big hooved animals. So things that um, can travel long distances in a short period of time, horses, bison, um, you know, elephants, those kinds of things. They're going to be everywhere because they move around so much. Um, and then the things that eat them are going to follow them everywhere, right? Yeah, the big, that's true. the big yep. carnivores. That's a good point. Um, when you talk about the smaller animals, those are going to be much more localized. Okay. And so ground squirrels, right? We have a lot of ground squirrels in North America today. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, most of them are different species, and that's because mm. little things don't move around as much. Right. Um, I mean, maybe one exception to that would be like the cottontail rabbit, which is just Mm -hmm. about everywhere. Although when you go into the West, there are definitely habitats where you don't find those. You find um, jackrabbits instead. And so it would probably have been very similar in the Pleistocene. Um, I would say humans probably fragment the environment quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that different, definitely different biomes, like if you're going to go into a desert, Um, you're going to find different species than if you're going to be in a forest. And I would say that was probably much more exaggerated in the Pleistocene because there were just more animals then. There really were. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I imagine then today if we took humans just off the map, you know, snap our fingers and and we are in North America Mm -hmm. uh, and things were just allowed to be as they were during the, you know, post-Ice Age but pre-settlement 
part of of the the country it'd probably be kind of the same wouldn't it a lot of the larger mammals today would still be you know moving migrating all you know to and from different regions of the the continent and the small small mammals would still be kind of locked into their little areas probably and i mean there really wasn't a post-extinction event non-human event in in north america so Mm. people came into north america from asia right they crossed Mm -hmm. the bering land bridge and they came into north america um during the last ice age so they lived they coexisted with all of these Mm -hmm. big megafauna that we're talking about right now um and it wasn't until you know about twelve thousand years ago that the megafauna started to go extinct 12 to 13,000 years ago is when that started to happen. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of different hypotheses about why that occurred, but it seems like the answer is probably it was a, a whole host of things that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of different things happened at the same time. Um, Climate started warming naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, Humans were here. They introduced things like fire they um probably hunted some animals although i don't think an overkill hypothesis um is is good enough on its own i Mm. think it was a a a amalgamation of effects with all of the megafauna kind of a perfect storm yeah a perfect storm and so um you know the big things went extinct and the small things stuck around and even some of the bigger things we have today that we think of as surviving the extinction event you know unscathed mm-hmm. that wasn't the case likely they probably suffered major effects from oh, the extinction really? event like uh, mountain lions and coyotes sure. um and um and and really things like deer and elk weren't in North America until the very, very end of the Pleistocene. Uh, okay, that's really They came in at sort of the last gasp um, from from Europe and Asia. So they would have used the they would have used the Bering the land, land bridge. bridge. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's that's really interesting. After that explanation from Doctor Meachin, it's becoming more apparent that the world then was a perpetual winter version of a lot of what we see now. And because of this overall lower global temperature, species we find in closer proximity to the poles were found at lower latitudes. But within their own unique biomes and functioning within their own unique ecosystems, living and dying in an age and world we can't hardly recognize. Dr. Meachin also alluded to the elephant or uh, the mammoth in the room. What happened? Where did all the glaciers and boreal forests and megafauna go? What would be kind of a good summation of the little things that added up to a big thing that spelled disaster for so many of these species in a roughly narrow amount of time? Yeah, I would say definitely climate change was a big one. Um, The climate warmed at least six degrees centigrade Mm. um, from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. And so it was a huge, and it was, it happened in like a few hundred years. Like it was like immediate, right? So that was a huge thing. I would say humans um, being introduced to new environments um, probably didn't help things at all. Mm -hmm. Um, If humans weren't killing these animals, which they may not have been, they were doing things like modifying their habitat. That's one Mm -hmm. thing that humans are really good at, even in small numbers, is modifying their habitat, right? They do it everywhere. And they've done it since they existed. So um, that that was definitely something that didn't help. 
Um, and, and these were just major landscape changes. Like, for example, if climate warms and humans come in and modify the habitat, you might get a complete floral turnover. Mm. If that happens, that's disaster for all those big ungulates. All those big herbivores are sure. not going to survive that. And if the herbivores don't survive, the carnivores won't survive. Mm-hmm. And so that it was kind of that one-two punch. Yeah, I think that really that really did it. That really did it. Yeah. Hmm. Death by a thousand cuts was what wiped out many of our Pleistocene megafauna. They were fighting for survival on too many fronts, and the very unique conditions that had suited their existence shifted in a way they could not adapt to, and their limit was exceeded. They disappeared. But not all of the megafauna were lost. Every large animal we see today represents a survivor. How did they hang on when the others couldn't? You mentioned this a little bit too. Some of these organisms were coming in at the tail end, mm-hmm. and, and they're still here today. Right. Some were here, though, uh, for quite some time. They've shifted into different ranges like um, musk ox and uh, yeah. uh, some of the caribou, I guess it'd be a, what they're a, a subspecies or a, or a variety, or I don't know what the right term is there, but but car- some of the caribou that we still have today that have now in the lower forty eight we have no caribou, right? And, which is actually I've heard someone make a point before. It's kind of like this big extirpation event that happened in very recent history. Like I think the last caribou in the lower 48 were gone in like the 70s or something like that hmm. 60s or 70s and yeah. nobody really cared yeah. and it's, it's just sad because they used to be here in iowa too um but some of these organisms have stood the test of time they yeah. they survived why why was it that they were able to hang on what kinds of common traits that did they have or that's a good question. And um, I would say a lot of those common traits are flexibility. Mm. Um, so some of the things I can think of, so coyotes. Um, coyotes were here in the lower 48 states before the extinction event, and they're here now, and they're actually doing really well with mm-hmm. humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say coyotes are sort of the champion um, flexible species. Like they can really live in any kind of environment and they can eat just about anything. And as anybody who lives in an area with coyotes knows, uh, don't let your cats out at night, right? Mm-hmm. Like coyotes yeah. can eat cats and they're, and they're doing <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can eat garbage. They can eat dog food. They mm-hmm. can eat anything. Um, and so coyotes were one of those champs. Um, the gray wolf actually did a really good job of surviving the extinction event. And that, I think that's mostly because they were really relegated to um, Eurasia and Siberia before the extinction event. Mm-hmm. Um, and the removal of dire wolves from the lower 48 by that extinction event opened up a niche for them that wasn't, you know, that right, wasn't yeah, available yeah. before. Yeah. They were being outcompeted um, yep. and, and they moved down here after that. I mean, they were around in the Pleistocene, but they were really rare. Like there's okay, not that sure. many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to dire wolves who are just everywhere. Hmm. And so there are some traits, you know, the deer, um, elk and deer are definitely old world species. They're, they're Eurasian in origin and they came over sort of toward the end of the extinction event. And I think that there were probably still enough of them in Eurasia that they still kept coming over. So it was probably Mm -hmm. certain things that allowed them to survive. Um, the other big one, the other big megafauna that I can think of that survived um, was the the mountain lion. And as it turns out, 
Um, from their DNA, it seems that they may have actually gone extinct in North America really? during the last ice age and then wow. moved up from South America okay. back into North America. Wow. So or almost extinct. Right. So sure. they really took a hit as well. They weren't they weren't safe. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that really also did well were all the little critters. So mm. all the rodents, all the rabbits, mm. all those things, um, the smaller carnivores, they all actually managed to do just fine. Um, and I think, you know, there was a lot of size selection during that extinction event. Yeah. Um, so the things that were bigger that survived sort of um, either came in from somewhere else, maybe had a really, really labile ecology mm-hmm. um, or, you know, they were small. That's, yeah. that's about it. What a strange turn of events. Only the small survive? That isn't often what you think of when you consider extinction events. That's how things seem to have played out here, but it wasn't the only reason. Those species who were most capable of thriving within multiple ecosystems, or possessing a labile ecology, as Dr. Meachin said, were also spared from the many events that whittled away the other species around them. Think back to when I mentioned how Nicholas and I wanted to see how this story of changing landscapes related to our own home turf. Well... Just over 10 years ago, some shocking remains were discovered in our neighboring county. Here's naturalist Laura DeCook with more on this story. It was back in 2010. Okay. And I remember that summer vividly because that's when I moved to Oskaloosa. In late summer, there was a lot of rain. Highways were flooded. And so that stuck out in my mind. And that natural weather event helped a landowner discover these mammoth bones. Hmm. Um, so there's a, a local landowner. Um, he's always asked that we keep his name private, so we do. And sure. um, but it's it's not far from Oskaloosa. And after the rains, he and his sons were out looking in the creek area for arrowheads. Um, they enjoy doing that, probably looking for berries at that mm. time of year. Yep. Also, berry picking and. They noticed that the rain had caused a washout and created like a little gully next to the creek. Looking down in there, they see this black round object, almost the size of a bowling ball. Hmm. And it made them do a double take. Well, after finally um, they got it out of the dirt, they see that it's a bone and from the ground, it's almost from the ground to chest high. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, it's the one that's behind you, the really big one. It's actually the wow. femur. And over time, the, they really wanted to know exactly what it is. So with the help of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Iowa, mm-hmm. they eventually learned that it's a mammoth. And as more exploration was done on the landowner's part, and then the university pitched in, Um, and other volunteers, and the conservation board was asked to be involved in the digging. Um, We said, yeah, that's a neat opportunity. So we jumped right in, and uh, we learned that it's a woolly mammoth. you got to do some of the digging yourself? Wow. Yes. That would be a career highlight right off the bat. When I started working for Mahaska (laughs) County, I did not know that would be added to my list of experiences, but I'm so glad it was. Um, From the people that I met and the knowledge that I've learned and something so unique Mm -hmm. about Iowa's history. But uh, 
Yeah, so one of our roles was helping coordinate volunteers. So Mm -hmm. we'd find volunteers, individuals, families. We'd work with companies. Cargill had like a, a day for employees to come down and experience the dig. Really? Yeah. So That's it was, uh, cool. Yeah. What was the, well, practically, what is it like? Because you can't just put in a big old excavator, you know, you're in the. <laughs> no, it, it's careful work, but it's not as detailed as if you are trying to dig around like human remains, I guess you okay. could say. So um, there was excavator work. At to some point, and soon as you see a bone, you stop. I mean, there's just you might have to sacrifice something getting cracked or scratched. Just because um, otherwise it would be too painstakingly it long. Takes, to, there's a lot of dirt. Sure. And I could show you photos of our like waste pile of dirt that's been <clears throat> sorted through where there's no bone fragments. Wow. Um, but mainly we would use shovels, and we would probe the the dirt with mm-hmm. is like just a long ice pick and poke it in there and if it hits something hard you don't dig right there mm. the crazy thing is the more that you poke around and you discover what's under there you get the feel for it and you can almost almost 100 percent tell the difference between a rock and a bone by the way it feels mm. and sounds but we would flag areas where we would know there's something there and Then we'd have a team of people that had hand trowels and brushes, and they would take hand trowels and dig through it until they got to the bones. And they wouldn't take the bones out right away. We would dig out all the way around it so that the bones were almost on a pedestal. We would take photographs and document its location, what kind of bone it looks like. Um, Sometimes it was hard to tell if it was just a fragment, but pretty much we could tell what it was. And then after all of that was done, the volunteer would be able to take it out and have their photograph taken. And we would um, then get it cleaned and put in storage. And hmm. But it was a, a fun experience even for the volunteers. Yeah. Just knowing you are the first person to touch this bone. Yeah. In 12,000 years. From the time it died, yes. It's, it's just incredible. It's been underground that whole time. The fascinating thing about these are that they are not fossilized. Hmm. They are actual bone that's survived this long. Um, A big reason why they're so well preserved is in a big area that we were digging, there's a natural spring underground. And so when there is water coming up from below and keeps the bones moist, oxygen cannot get to the bones and... You know, get, and it preserves. It's, if you find a skeleton in ice, that's probably the best preservation. Water mm-hmm. is another high quality of way of preserving bones over time. So really? a lot I of I feel them, like water, I guess with metal water, just will like corrode it to nothing. Right. But this is, these have been underground. They're packed around with the soil and mm. kept moist. They don't dry out. If they dry out a lot, they'll crack and they'll become very brittle. Some areas there were some fragmented bones and that were brittle Hmm. Uh, we'd have to put plaster around those to hold their form Um, but we found many many bones and many pieces of bones the interesting thing about this area in the dig is that 
a mammoth just didn't lay down and die, so you would find one bone connected to the next bone as you would expect. They're scattered everywhere. Mm. It's such mm. a puzzle. You know, people did not document what happened on that day in history like yeah, we do yeah, today. Yeah. So it's a guess, and as many experts that have been to the area, no one is sure what happened to the mammoths, how they died, or why they are positioned the way they are. Um, but it's, this site has proven to be a very, very unique site for a few reasons. One is that there are ma multiple mammoths found there. Mm. So I got my little inch info here. Based on the teeth, um, we have three individuals, and they're all older adults, based on studying the teeth there are two males and a female so um, they had samples taken and sent of each tooth and sent to a lab to have it analyzed so mm. they can radiocarbon date scientifically mm -hmm. what they believe how old they are mm. and so what did they say for age well um radiocarbon dating that they're seventeen thousand year old years old so they're about 15,000 BC wow. which is just a couple thousand short of the end of the mm -hmm. ice age or the Pleistocene yeah mm. when they were to have lived I mean that means that they I feel like a bunch of the fossils we or I guess bone and sub fossils that we get from the Pleistocene age are not um I, I mean, I just have an assumption that they're all from the very end, you know, because mm, a lot a of those point. species went extinct very quickly. Um, and so I just, but then these were 2,000 years, well, no, 12,000 years ago. Sure. These would have been four or 5,000 years yeah. before the end. Before the end. But wow. the, uh, the time, you now these were determined to be woolly mammoths and looking at the the chewing surface of the mammoth, they determined that um, the species, based on the type of grooves it has and the distance in the of the grooves. That, and that's versus uh, Jeffersonian, right, mammoths? Right, or Wal even a Wal mastodon. Oh, sure. You can yep, yep. very evidently tell difference. So they, <clears throat> we were originally thinking it might be a Colombian mammoth. Okay. Okay, because those yeah. have been found in neighboring states. Really? But those are the huge Knowing ones, that right? Those this, are the monster yeah, ones those from are, further south. Yeah, mostly. they're they're bigger, much mm. bigger. And so finding that they are woolly mammoths and that there are multiple individuals that died in one area and by the 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 tooth analysis there wasn't much time between their deaths. It wasn't like mm. a one event thing, but something happened so they had been living here um so that is one reason why that they're it's a unique site also that all of these individuals died in this area and they didn't their bones didn't travel far by flow of heavy water mm -hmm. for example to scatter them because there are really heavy bones like the uh yeah the femur the femur let's kind of describe that i mean you can see it on our instagram account but Let's say it's what, maybe at least four feet in length. Yeah. And I bet it weighs like 80 pounds. Wow. Really? Imagine what that thing weighed when it was, you know, filled yeah. with marrow Think of a, and a soggy, wet hay bale, and... square hay bale. That's what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and then um, there were also tiny fragments close by these really heavy bones. So we know that water didn't carry the lightweight things away and mm-hmm. leave the heavy ones behind. They're all mixed together. So any so. chance they were eaten? Um, or like attacked and hunted and eaten and then scattered? By people, there's no evidence of... No cut marks. No cut marks like on the no bones. No like dire wolf or... No. <laughs> we didn't find any other Ice Age animal mixed in there too. We were really mm. hoping, but that would be did cool. not find any where we were digging. Um, but there were a few bones that you can tell on the scrapes that... They had been chewed on after death. So scavenging took place Right. You know, just like a coyote would find a deer skeleton and chew on it. It might have been a... makes you wonder what it was, doesn't it? I know it. it. Yes. Of course, Ice Age animals were larger than what they are today. So it could have been a big wolf that chewed on it. Man, that's so fun to think about what on earth came across that and started gnawing on it. There's also a bone... Um, that has a hole in it, so it looked like something had chewed on it and gone down ig- inside to get oh, the marrow. Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, post-death is evidence. Absolutely incredible. Three mammoths right down the road from Hoxie Native Seeds? Why here? What killed them? Are they still digging for more evidence? We need more information. There's just not enough information. Yeah. It's just all speculation. It, right. it very well could be disease. It could be predation, but it's mm-hmm. just not showing. Um, it could be a natural event. It's, it's just really hard to tell. But the fact is that they're there. Mm-hmm. There is a story to be told about our history. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we talk about old history of Iowa. We go back to the time of when Native Americans lived here mm-hmm. and colonization, all that. But this is way before that. Right. And it's almost mind-boggling but fascinating at the same time. So uh, how long did the whole excavation process like, how long were you guys working on, on it before you find it? Like, all right, I think we found everything yeah. we're going to find, and we got to get this landowner. It was hard back. to stop. <laughs> I bet. Well, it, because of our location, we ended up getting closer and closer to the current creek with that was right there. Mm-hmm. And we just stopped finding bones. It was just harder and harder to find anything. And the only way that we could, it was probably about, 2014 15 i'd have to look exactly but um wow five years four to five years four about four years or so we were we worked on it yeah all on wow just the summer times or as long as we could due to weather um for spring i bet that was fun to look forward to every year it's almost digging season it was yeah exactly and then we just stopped finding bones. And the only way that we could find more was to do excavation work deeper into the hillside, mm. the opposite way we had been digging. And so that takes money mm-hmm. to run an excavator um, yeah. and time. And we just thought, well, we're going to stop where we are now. I wouldn't be surprised if the landowner's gone back out and tried again. So the really nice thing that the landowner did for the local community and he talked to me about it and our conservation board from the beginning that all these bones we're finding he wants to make sure that the community learns about Iowa's history mm. and about the woolly mammoths that is really cool. and Good for so him. um 
We applied for the McQuiston Trust here in Oskaloosa and were able to purchase the bones from the landowner to put here at the Environmental Learning Center. So we now use special bones for education purposes, but we have majority of them on display um, on a rotating basis. So the people can come out here and see what these mammoth bones were like and and learn all about them. Mm. And so I'm glad for his generosity to, to think of the community that way. Definitely. That's, that's really cool when people step up and see the value beyond just my bones. You know, nobody gets to see them. And And he, he gave a lot too to invite people on his land and Mm -hmm. have the opportunity to dig. And so it's appreciated. Wow. What an incredible tale that hits close to home. Stories like this make my brain wander into the ancient past of the places where I am now so deeply connected. We focus so hard on the here and now that we fail to find context from the past by which to examine the evidence before us. I think the story of these finds has helped me improve on that. Instead of focusing on what feature may have lured in so much life that it might die and be piled into one focused area, but instead, maybe this ground that we walk on that we feel so in control of has already been walked, has already been lived and died on. And if the necessary conditions for preserving that evidence of life existed where we stand, we might find a seemingly infinite amount of life that was once connected to the very same ground. The land is cruel and wonderful. The land holds secrets of yesterday that provide answers for today. The land is precious. And it's our responsibility to view it that way. On behalf of our presenting sponsor, Hoxie Native Seeds, thank you for listening to the first episode in our prehistoric prairie series. Be on the lookout for part two and three coming up soon. Please remember that Hoxie Native Seeds specializes in restoring prairie habitat. You can go to the website hoxienativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com and order your own prairie seed. Whether you want to seed in a backyard prairie plot, maybe a pollinator plot, or maybe even a large-scale prairie such as your CRP acres, or you just have some old pasture that you want to convert back into native habitat, we have you covered here at Hoxie Native Seeds. Keep your eyes peeled for the next episodes coming up in our Prehistoric Prairie podcast series. And keep those eyes on the ground searching for your own pieces of ancient evidence right where you call home.